Lord, we do praise you this morning and do desire that you receive all the glory, particularly from what you have revealed to us as we open up and probe it and look into it, that you would bring it to life before us, that we may be in tune with what you have revealed and with what you desire of us. We also do desire to not only pray for our country, but that we would take this opportunity to uh, be the people you want us to do, the salt of the earth, the evangelists that you've called us to be, the influences that we can impact our culture with. We desire to be all those things to the max and that we might really take advantage of the freedom that we do have to teach your word, preach your gospel, be your people. So we commit our time to you, desiring that you would have your way amongst us, that your spirit would quicken us, that if there's anything that interferes with us listening and hearing your word, that we might confess that right now, and that we might be in fellowship and have full benefit of what your word has to say. So we commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. In fact, can I, can I take yes. a, a story to tell? Yes. So this father came to his son and said, uh, you need to clean up your room. Meaning such. You need to clean up your room. You need to put your shoes away. You need to get your dirty clothes picked up. Those toys need to go in the closet. Now you need to get your room cleaned up. And so he came back uh, a couple hours later. They connected and he said, did you clean up your room? The child said, no. No, I didn't clean up my room. But I memorized everything you told me. I very carefully memorized exactly what you told me to do. But did you clean up your room? No, I didn't clean up my room. Lesson for us? <laughs> good lesson. <laughs> Very good. And most of you have memorized a lot of scripture. <laughs> That's not what we're called to do. That's right. It's just the starting point, the foundation. Okay, today what I'd like to do is we're going to get back into the book of Revelation. More of an introduction. And let's view it this morning from particular perspective. One thing that happens to young people today, they're raised in the church, they've gone to all the Sunday school, they've gone through the high school program, they're committed to the Lord, they're excited about being a Christian, they're walking with the Lord, and they reach the college campus, and a lot of them lose, quote, lose their faith, or at least their stand for Jesus Christ. Because we, as a church, are not grounding our children in not just the Word, and sometimes that's shallow and superficial, but we're not grounding them in terms of how to have an answer to what the world is present to them. So the whole area of apologetics, and the Bible has always obviously been under attack and certainly in our day, more so than probably a lot of other periods in time, and from all different areas, even from the church itself, the Bible is under attack. So it's good to equip people and equip our young people particularly, not that they'll always absorb everything that we share with them, but at least we ought to expose them to a defense of what God has taught us in his word, to be able to know that there are answers virtually to every question. And from every area, the Bible stands up to all criticism. It survived thousands of years. 
And there's a reason for it, because it stands up to scientific inquiry, it stands up to scholarly inquiry, it stands up to every way that you can think of that Satan would try to attack, including things like churches that take a weak view on Scripture. So that's a little bit of the emphasis that I want to take in looking at the background, because this is part of giving an answer And we ought to expose our children, grandchildren, to being able to not only know Scripture, but to be able to defend it. Because they may know it all and get to the college campus, and here you got a guy with a Ph.D. says, well, all of that is mythological, all of that is not true, Genesis is just a myth, Book of Revelation is so allegorical that you can't understand it, da-da-da-da-da. And they don't have an answer, so they're shaken, and they don't know how to respond. They need to at least know that there is an answer. And I'm not sure that we're equipping our young people in that area. All right? So, with that, we're in the book of Revelation. And I consider it one of the most important books of the entire Bible. And I think one of the reasons there's so much confusion over it is because there is a satanic spiritual war against all of Scripture. And the books that are particularly under attack are the book of Genesis, the beginning, and how God is going to bring everything together in the end. So the book of Revelation is another book that is, in fact, under attack, and particularly from the church, because there's so much confusion over it. So we want to clarify some things. Make sense? Now, somebody asked, why do I use this slide? Uh, An aircraft carrier, I forgot to mention in the introduction last week. I like the slide for one. (laughs) So that's a reason. (laughs) Number two, this is the way eschatology comes to us. This is the way the book of Revelation comes to us. An aircraft carrier is one of the most sophisticated things that man has ever put together. It's an entire city in itself, self-contained city that you can move about wherever you want to in the world. Anything that gets in the way of an aircraft carrier, a battleship, or any other type of boat, what's the word, ship or whatever, is is going to be ripped in half by that aircraft carrier. Similarly, the things that God has prophesied, the things that God has planned, There's nothing that we can stand in the way of them to change them, alter them. We are going to get run over. And that's why I like that slide there. And if the ship is not enough, it's got all the firepower and uh, planes and everything else that it's equipped to deal with. So that's an answer why I do that, to introduce not only the book of Revelation, but also eschatology. Just a quick review. Walverd says about the book, even a casual reader of the book of Revelation is impressed with the tremendous scope of its prophecies. Absolutely true. Next sentence here is obviously an important book, and I would even say one of the most important books because it gives us the end, how God is going to bring everything together. And you need that picture to be able to put everything else in its place. So here is obviously an important book, one intended by God to be a final word to man. And that is, in fact, what it is. S.L. Johnson, another scholar, he has died, but he calls the book the Hallelujah Chorus of the Redeemed. And one of the reasons is from a personal applicational perspective, 
It, in fact, elicits worship and praise. So it is the hallelujah chorus of those that believe in the Lord, the redeemed. Last time, real quick, I tried to emphasize why this book is important, one of the most important. And I started with the idea that everyone has an eschatology. Everyone has a view of future things. Most people have a distorted view. Most people have a false view. Most people have a counterfeit view. There's a lot of counterfeits out there. It manifests itself in a lot of ways in our culture, and you can see it every day. I gave you the Islamic eschatology. I gave you a political eschatology. I gave you how it's manifested today in the environmental movement. It has an eschatology and other areas as well that I gave you last week. I used this cartoon to kind of illustrate it. Even Dennis the Menace has an eschatology in his statement. I'm going to learn to fly when I grow up, so I won't be scared later when I become an angel. That's an eschatological statement. Not a good one, but it's an eschatological statement. It's one that, is, you know, people have a general concept, some people, that when we die, we become angels, or at least children do. That's not a biblical concept. So everyone has an eschatology. The issue is not whether people have an eschatology. The issue is how distorted is it? And what we want to do is develop a biblical eschatology. And one of the main books that teaches us that is the book of Revelation. And that's why it's important to study. New Testament would be incomplete without it. We talked about that. It gives us God's perspective, God's view of how things are going to work out. So we have an authoritative, inspired view of what God has in view for the future. And he's been careful to give us a lot of detail concerning that plan. So we are without excuse, as Romans 1 tells us. God has made his revelation clear such that we have available that revelation. Another reason it's important, the unbelieving world, I tried to emphasize as well, has a yearning for a solution to the problem of evil. We try to deal with evil in a lot of ways. We try to do it politically. We try to do it environmentally. We try to do it in all these other ways, culturally, religiously even. Even from a spiritual, we try to deal with it. It's only the Bible that has an answer and a resolution for evil, and it's only God that's going to resolve evil. The book of Revelation gives us that detail concerning how things are going to work out. So it's important from that perspective. So we talked about that last time. And in terms of evil, there's only one hope. The emphasis of the book of Revelation, I called it a fifth gospel, because that fifth gospel is a picture of the only one who has dealt with evil in a decisive way on the cross, and he's the only hope for the future, a belief and trust in him. So that's what we tried to stress last time. And ultimately, of all of the books of the Bible, the book of Revelation probably gives us a picture of the glory of God more so than probably any other place. Because we have the glorified Lord Jesus Christ as the focus of the book of Revelation. So the glory of God is emphasized, and ultimately, everything is going to work itself out such that God gets 
all of the glory. He may not get it today. He may get it on a limited basis, even within us that know him and believe him. But ultimately, he will receive full glory. And we see that in uh, not only eschatology, but the book of Revelation. So that's why this book is important. How many of you read it? Great. Almost all of you this week. We did. Pardon me? Not this week? Oh, okay. I was hoping I had motivated you that several of you had read it three or four times this week. Oh, well. We concluded last time by explaining some of the confusion. And, and by the way, there are several eschatological views. I'm just giving you a few of them that pertain particularly to the book of Revelation, and then they expand beyond the book of Revelation. But all of these basically are views of commentators that discuss the book of Revelation. Uh, we didn't talk about amillennialism. We didn't talk about postmillennialism. We could deal with them as well. But I'm going to summarize all of that in the, I think, what is the proper approach. We didn't talk about all of the... Uh, Views related to the tribulation, and there are several of them. When does the rapture take place? Does it take place before? Does it take place after? Does it take place in the middle? Does it take place several times throughout the whole tribulation period? You know, those views. So you have all of those variations. And for the sake of time, we can get into all of those. So I gave you just those that are related to the book of Revelation. I mentioned the book of Revelation isn't hard to understand, but because of the scope of what is described and because of some of the symbolism, the book of Revelation assumes you know the rest of the Bible. It's the last book, last chapter, last book. So by the time you get to the book of Revelation, you should have the rest of the Bible somewhat, at least in summary form, understood. And if you do, then the book of Revelation is not hard to understand, but it is hard to believe because it is so spectacular. And the scale of the judgments are so inconceivable in our minds that it's hard to believe. And as a result, a lot of the commentators just play around with it because they said, well, this, is, you know, it's too far out of the normal. Well, do we like the normal? <laughs> not really. I gave you one of the views, and I mentioned that you might say, think this is way out, but it is gaining in popularity today. Last time I talked about the preterist view. I mentioned a well-known, in fact, well-respected, and one that I would encourage all of you even to study. R.C. Sproul takes this viewpoint. I wouldn't advise taking his book, that he, the recent book that he's written on eschatology, because he takes <coughs> this viewpoint. Unless you're interested in it and want to know where do they come up with this, then, then it's a pretty good book. But in just about every other area, he's a very, very sound interpreter and uh, theologian. But preterism, most prophetic events taking place in the first century. So they see fulfillment, and in order to do that, you have to depart from a sound hermeneutic. You have to revise your way of interpreting the biblical text, and that's exactly what the preterist is forced to do. So 70 AD is the wrath on Israel. Now it opens the door also, and from this camp and from this viewpoint, a lot of anti-Semitic theologies also come into play. 
like replacement theology. Replacement theology, as the name says, is the church replaces Israel. God is done with Israel. That's not biblical. God has a whole plan and lots of promises, all of the covenants. So God is legally bound by covenant to fulfill what he promised the nation of Israel. They have a huge future. In fact, the church is taken out, if you believe in a rapture, and now God is going to deal with the nation of Israel again. The book of Revelation is very, very clear on that. So preterism, I think, is a distorted uh, approach to the book of Revelation. The historicist is closer to what we would believe, and in fact, a lot of people from our camp take at least a partial historicist view in that they see some prophecies fulfilled in in the church age, not so much necessarily at 70 AD, but throughout the church age. And I gave you a couple of examples of that. Prophetic events taking place in history from the first century to the end. This came about during the Reformation. So the beast of Revelation 13 and other passages, they interpret that as being fulfilled by the Roman Catholic Church. The popes were the Antichrist, if you will, and the present reigning pope was the Antichrist of that day. And as time went on, different ones became that beast. And they saw other things in history that they tried to tie that are described in the book of Revelation. For example, they saw trumpet judgments covering from 395 to 1453 A.D. In other words, those were fulfilled in that time frame. That's a historicist interpretation. The first first trumpet judgment was the invasion of the Goths uh, who attacked Rome in that early time frame. And they would try to fit events in the book of Revelation to different parts of history. Now, people like Ironsides, who is a very, he's very fundamental, he is very much in our camp, he's a futurist, that's our viewpoint. He kind of uh, takes, for example, chapters 2 and 3 that describe the book of Revelation, and there's some other very conservative interpreters, particularly older ones, but a lot of them today as well, take the viewpoint that the seven churches are a picture of seven ages of the church age. So Ephesus would be the, the early church apostolic and early church fathers. Laodicea, the last one in chapter 3, would be the last days church, and they would say that we're living in the last days, so we are representative of the church of Laodicea. We are lukewarm, and the Lord is about to vomit us out of his mouth. Literally is what the word means, spit us out of his mouth. And you probably read very good commentaries that take this viewpoint. I don't. I, I try to be consistent in my hermeneutic. I was going to ask if as throughout history we have seen types of types of Christs, we've seen types of antichrists and what they would we also see types of these judgments, not the, the one itself, but foreshadowing or symbolic of what's to coming? I think that is possible. But, uh, and I wouldn't use the word type. I think type hermeneutically has a very tight and specific category, if you will. But you might say precursors or illustrations. In other words, Hitler 
was not a type, but I would say an antichrist. He was a savior type person, obviously from Satan himself. Antiochus Epiphanes, historically before the Jews, was an antichrist type person, and I think he's described in the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I think through history there have been, t- not types, but illustrations yeah, of okay, that. illustrations. Yeah. I can buy that. I didn't know how else. Yeah, Satan doesn't know when the second coming is going to take place, so he has, I think, raised up his man for different periods of time to act. And John says this in Second John uh, chapter 2, or First John chapter 2, there are many antichrists. And he was speaking of his day. Many have come. But there's going to be a future one that fulfills all of the prophecies, literally, who is specifically described in places like the book of Revelation. Does that answer so, that question? Yeah, so precursors. They're precursors of yes. what to come. So yeah. That would be a good way to say. Right, exactly. So they're not fulfilling it, but they are precursors of mm. what? They're kind of, they, they have, they're the, what John says, the spirit of Antichrist as well. In other words, they have the characteristics, the elements that you would expect in the ultimate one that will literally fulfill. Okay. By the way, Hal Lindsey, who is an excellent expositor, graduate of Dallas Seminary, his book, for example, The Late Great Planet Earth, he does a little bit of this. And as a result, The Late Great Planet Earth today is out of date because he ties it to the 60s and 70s when he wrote the book. So if you're consistent, then there are no real fulfillments in terms of what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse and no fulfillments yet in terms of things in the book of Revelation. I'll try to explain that later. So we talked about the historicist. i give you more than I wanted to here. The idealist. This is another viewpoint. A picture. And by the way, that's where we left off last time. So let me expand this one. A picture in some symbolic form of eternal principles. In other words, don't look at events. Don't concentrate. Don't look for fulfillments. Don't look for specific events. Look for the principles behind. Now, that is a good hermeneutical principle in terms of dealing with Scripture, but you you don't deny, and that's what this viewpoint does, a literal interpretation of the passages. In other words, what John is describing in the book of Revelation and what God describes in other prophetic scriptures are real events that are going to take place in time. This kind of does away with all that and spiritualizes all of those passages. Here's a description by a writer, Milligan. He says, while the apocalypse, that's the book of Revelation, While the apocalypse thus embraces the whole period of Christian dispensation, it sets before us, within this period, the action of great principles, not special incidents. In other words, don't look for events or people. We, he goes on, we are not to look in the apocalypse for special events, but for an exhibition of the principles which govern the history both of the world and the church. What I would say, yes, there are principles behind all of Scripture that are applicable in every age, but you don't deny the literalness of the events or the people. All right, that's the difference. So I reject that viewpoint because it 
eliminates the whole foundation for the principles. So the idealists, some of the proponents, and these are all commentaries on the book of Revelation, Hendrickson, and I bought it specifically because I wanted to see how do they come up with this stuff. And what they have to do is they have to spiritualize all of the passages. They have to change a hermeneutic. And Hendrickson's a good commentator. If you take, for example, his commentary, I think I think he has one on Ephesians, for example. Excellent commentary. When you come to the book of Revelation, well, read a comic book instead. Okay, R.C. Lenski, another very capable, very good commentator. I have other commentaries by Lenski. Strengths, the Bible contains eternal principles. I've already told you that. So don't throw away the eternal principles, but don't throw away the literal, actual events that are described as well. And that's what this viewpoint does. So it gets rid of the foundation. Futurist, this is the viewpoint that I think maintains a consistent hermeneutic. Now, we don't use theology to defend our hermeneutic we develop a hermeneutic first. And what I mean by hermeneutic is, is an approach of interpretation. That's what hermeneutics is. It's the science and art of interpretation. You come up with sound principles. You come up with biblical principles of interpreting scripture. And then let the scriptures speak for themselves within that approach. Every other approach except the futurist imposes a compromised hermeneutic. Every one of them have to spiritualize passages. If you maintain a consistent hermeneutic, in other words, an approach to Scripture, what you will end up with is a futurist position, and that's the proper way of interpreting Scripture. Let the Scriptures speak for themselves, maintain a proper hermeneutic. And I teach hermeneutics. That's one of the main courses I teach. So if you're interested in it. Well, actually, in the book of Hebrews, I gave you a lot of those principles. So I gave you the course. So the futurist viewpoint, most events taking place in the future, in the book of Revelation, particularly from chapter 4 to the end of the book. Futurist. Some of the proponents, John Walvred, this is a position of Dallas Seminary, J.D. Pentecost, who's a very important theologian in this area. Feinberg, from another good seminary. It, it maintains a consistent hermeneutic, and that's the main thing. There's other aspects that are strengths as well. So if you have a good hermeneutic, in other words, a good approach to interpreting Scripture, and you maintain that same hermeneutic that you would deal with in the book of Ephesians, if you apply that to the book of Revelation, you will come out. You'll come out premillennial, You'll come out pre-tribulational, and you'll come out futurist in terms of your interpretation. That's what pops out. It's not that we impose it. Every other approach, amillennialism, you have to spiritualize. Post-millennialism, you have to spiritualize. Post-tribulationalism, you have to spiritualize. Mid-tribulationism, there's some passage you have to spiritualize. It's only the consistent hermeneutic that we end up with uh, the way that we generally try to interpret, or at least our circle of people. Make sense? And by the way, there are amillennialists in this church. I haven't run into any post-millennialists, but they may be out there as well and not even know it. They may not even know it themselves. <laughs> but I have run into amillennialists in this church, a Bible-teaching conservative church. But you have to compromise your hermeneutic. 
Same goes, uh, you know, that I do creation science. Same goes with the early chapters. In other words, the book of Genesis. If you take a consistent hermeneutic, you will end up young earth. You'll end up with a, a biblical view of science. And if not, then you're intimidated by science and you do all these compromises. Maintain a consistent hermeneutic. So here are all the approaches on one slide. The preterist sees everything fulfilled in the first century around 70 AD. Historicist sees different fulfillments throughout history. The idealist says don't look at events or people or things. Look up and be more spiritual. They're more spiritual than us. Unfortunately, they compromise their hermeneutic. But the futurist sees most, not everything, but most everything, particularly the book of Revelation, have a future fulfillment. See that? Now, there's another approach. Some people kind of combine some elements, combining more than one view. How Lindsay, for example, is primarily futurist. Primarily futurist. So virtually... 95% of what he says is very good, but he does try to tie some fulfillments in more contemporary times, so he takes a little bit of a historicist view. And for those conservative commentators that see church ages, what they're doing is they're imposing a historicist view on chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Okay? So combine more than one view. Call it eclectic. Leon Morris's commentary does this. Mounts's commentary in the book of Revelation. Osborne, that's an excellent commentary. One of the best commentaries. Osborne's commentary on the book of Revelation. Some places he mixes the uh, interpretation. And he takes a little bit of a historicist view. The strengths, it combines the best of views. But I think it also, when it does combine anything other than the futurist view, I think it compromises the hermeneutic. Okay. Okay, the rest of the time I want to spend a little bit of time on background. And like I said in the introduction, the Bible is under attack. And within liberal churches, liberal churches begin their attack with some of these background issues. And then once that attack takes hold, it has its impact in the way they approach Scripture. Today, in general, liberal denominations have totally abandoned Scripture. But it starts with a what they call a critical view. This is higher criticism, if you've heard of that. A critical view to issues of background. Now, it actually started in the book of Genesis. Liberalism did. But it extends to all of the books of the Bible, and they question authorship. So this is an area that this is the reason I'm going to give it to you because we need to kind of know this in order sometimes to deal with some people that come from different backgrounds than what we are. And you might suspect that they don't have a solid view of the Bible. They don't view it as inspired. They don't view it as inerrant. And you can defend the inerrancy of Scripture from every area, historically, philosophically, uh, scientifically, etc. So this is kind of one of those areas that is under attack. Liberalism denies that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. So you need to know that there is at least evidence, there's at least an, there's arguments for the position that John was the Apostle. 
And what this approach does, it starts with scripture, and there's categories here. The first category is internal evidence. What is the evidence that supports John the Apostle as the author? Now, you might say, well, I'm not concerned about that. Well, when your grandchildren reach the college campus, they will talk about, if they even talk about they they today they've just outright thrown the Bible out. It's mythological, it's useless, it doesn't have any value. If it encourages you a little bit, you know, fine, but you can read Shakespeare, that'll encourage you as well. So, this is a little bit of the apologetic. This is a little bit of a defense for John. And what I'm giving you, you can do this with every Bible, with every area. What is the evidence? And you start with, what does the Bible claim for itself? Now, that's not a circular reason or reasoning. It's just a starting point. And you need to know what the Bible claims for itself. And the Bible, if you look at the Bible, you find out there are not that many Johns in the Bible. So first you decide which John. Can't be John the Baptist. He died too early before anything was written. Now, most liberals put the writing of a lot of books, particularly the book of Revelation, like into the second century, sometimes even later than that, which would not be the Apostle John. And they give arguments against why they believe that. So they're denying what the book itself claims. In fact, that's part of internal evidence. Does that make sense? You understanding here? It's just becoming too technical. So you start, what does the Bible claim for itself? And if you look at even the first verse, a man by the name of John, and not only the first verse, but verse 4, verse 9, chapter 22, verse 8, there's a John that writes the book. And if you study the rest of the New Testament or the rest of the Bible, you have John the Baptist, and the only other John is John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And there's very, very little for John Mark. And then you have John, who is one of the main apostles, And it appears that he is obviously, if you take into account all of the evidence, the one that wrote this book. So you have internal evidence, a person by the name of John, probably the Apostle of John. You have a lot of similarities between another gospel, and there's a lot of evidence to support that John wrote the gospel of John. Now, liberals will deny that John wrote that one as well. They say some man by the name of John in the second century wrote the Gospel of John, and wrote the book of Revelation. And we're saying, no, everything points to this. I'm just giving you evidence here. You can come to your own conclusion. Lots of similarities. And I could give you a whole list, but I won't take the time. If you want, I can send you a bunch of notes on that. And there's continuity with John's other writings. We also believe that, for example, John wrote three letters. First, second, third, John. And there's similar language, or similar topics, there's similar ideas, words. In fact, the word, remember, how does John, the gospel begin? In the beginning beginning was the word. And then for 14 verses, he explains the word. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. A common word in the book of Revelation is the word. In fact, the name of Jesus Christ is the word in the book of Revelation, one of the titles. So you see that in John, and you see similar ideas in his letters as well. He's familiar with Asia, particularly seven churches that he calls out individually. Great familiarity with Asia, 
John, the apostle, had that familiarity. A prophet, familiar with the Old Testament. You see lots of Old Testament allusions in the book of Revelation. You see some in even the Gospel of John. It's just evidence. You accumulate all of your evidence, and as a good scientist, where does the evidence point? What is the conclusion I come to? Based on the evidence. You need to communicate to your children and grandchildren that all of the evidence points in the direction that the Bible is the Word of God, it is inspired, it is inerrant in everything that it says. You can trust it when it deals with scientific issues, regardless of what your PhD with three PhDs professors have to say. It stands up. This is just one little tiny area. So the internal evidence gives us the impression that John, in other words, the Bible itself, gives the impression that John, the Apostle John, is the writer. So now you go outside of that. Is there evidence outside? And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but there is a lot of external evidence as well. For example, the apostolic fathers, in other words, early writers shortly after the first century, or actually some of them even overlap, some of them lived. For example, Polycarp, knew John himself. And Papias is a writer that takes some of Polycarp's writings and refers to John as the writer of the book of Revelation. So very early you have evidence. So you just go down the the line, second century, you have other church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian. In their writings, all of them refer to the book of Revelation and speak of the Apostle John, maybe not explicitly as as the author, but they might say, John the Apostle says this, and then they quote out of the book. That sort of evidence. So you read all of that, and you come to that conclusion. Third century, Origen, Hippolytus, Victorinus, other early writers. So we're just accumulating evidence here. And you gather all your evidence and look for contrary evidence as well. And the contrary evidence is very, very subjective, superficial, and very little at that. So we come to the conclusion that the book was written by the Apostle John. See what I'm doing here? I'm just giving you this as an example. This is what we need to do with our young people. We need to tell them and show them that there are things in the world that give evidence to everything that we believe. We don't believe, the Bible doesn't teach a blind faith. Everything we believe is based on fact, verifiable fact. Do you believe in the resurrection? Has anybody seen a resurrection? Well, why do you believe in a resurrection? You believe in a resurrection because there was a resurrection and there's historical testimony to that fact, more so than almost any other fact in past time. And you believe in a resurrection because there's evidence that supports it. And that's true of virtually everything in the Bible. All right? John the Apostle is the writer of this book. And every indication, you can go down the line, all the bits of data that we have points to 95 to 96 AD when he wrote the book. This is the last book to be written. Now, the historicists, they have to jump through hoops to put the writing of John before 70 AD. Otherwise, it's not prophetic. And that's the date that they use, but it's it's not very good evidence. It has to twist some of the evidence. So 
That's the date of writing. Uh, so there's a historical background. The church was under persecution, under domitian in this time frame. So it's written to a persecuted group of people. They needed a perspective. They needed a God-oriented perspective to be able to say, we may die, we may suffer, we may lose everything, but it's going to be worth it because of the future that God has for us. And most prophetic scriptures were written to people that were suffering to give them a biblical perspective so they could endure whatever. And it's written to us by way of scripture. In other words, we can apply that principle to our lives as well. We can face whatever God brings into our experience because we have the same future. We have the same hope if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. So Domitian was the emperor at that time, and he was the persecutor of the church. Socially, it was a prosperous culture, Roman Empire, lots of rich people, lots of poor people as well, but you see remnants of it, some of the archaeology to this day. So they were uh, great engineers. Religiously, it was an idolatrous culture. Any different from ours? Nope. We live in an idolatrous culture. Emperor worship was imposed. In fact, all of the religions, uh, the Greek pantheon was believed, the Roman gods were believed, also emperor worship. Don't worship Trump. He's not the savior. (laughs) Praise God. He may be God's man for this period, but he is not the savior. So that's a little background politically what was going on, and Christians were living in that time frame and had to deal with all of those issues, idolatry, emperor worship, political situations, persecution, etc. John tells us that he writes from an island named Patmos, and there's a photograph of the island, or at least a harbor, one of the cities there, and there's a city with the same name as the island. Was this a big island? No, it's a tiny island. That was a city here, and the bay was right there. And that's probably where John was. And there's... The bay or at the capital? Pardon me? Where was John? In the middle here, right in this area. That bay, the photograph is this area here, not the city up there. That's a Google Earth map. Where's the rest of the world? It's all around it. It's Yeah, it's right off the coast of Ephesus or present-day Turkey, about 60 miles off the mainland there, in the Aegean Sea. Some believe, and at least in some time, they built a monastery on where they believed the prison was that John occupied when he was on the island patents. It was a prison island like Alcatraz, in order that you know prisoners couldn't go anywhere, couldn't swim 60 miles. They tried to martyr John. By, uh, we learned this from church fathers. They boiled him in oil and assumed that that would kill him, martyr him. He survived because God had him in mind to write this book. And they said, well, let's just get rid of him, put him on an island, he'll die. He was about 90. He was in his 90s. So they assumed they didn't have TV back then, in the prisons, I mean. Uh, They didn't have spas and, you know, all the amenities that we have today. In fact, people in prison live a lot better than some people outside of prison. (laughs) They were rat-infested, disease-infested holes. And people died just from the exposure of the environment. 
So they put him on this island thinking that he would soon die. And little did they know that God had a book in mind for him to write. So that gives you an idea of where he was at. And the audience, or here's your picture. Here's Patmos. There's Ephesus. There's the seven churches in the order that probably they were delivered to each one and the order that they appear in the book of Revelation. You have Ephesus, you have Smyrna, you have Pergamum up north. In fact, that's a nice archaeological site, Pergamum. One of the greatest sites is Ephesus, Thyatira. I took a trip one time on my way back from, and I visited all seven of them. Sardis, Philadelphia, I couldn't find too much there. And then Laodicea, which is close, close to Colossae. Now, all this is what? In Turkey? Yes. In fact, that's a modern-day map. There's Ishmir, and the archaeological site is right in the middle of that city, so it's a kind of a smaller area. And just a few shots from Laodicea, just to give you a feel. This is the site that I visited there. They had a... They did have a spa. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, bathhouse. Knows, knows that plumbing, Bruce. Bathhouse and gymnasium remain. Yeah, they were athletes. Probably rode bikes. At <laughs> <laughs> a theater. This is not as well preserved as some in the ancient world, but a huge theater. Every city in the ancient world of significance had a theater. So that's a little bit of the background. The purpose of the book, the book tells us itself, but it's to encourage persecuted Christians. The way we can apply it is to encourage us through our hardship, through our suffering. It may not be persecution, but we need a biblical perspective to face any situation. We need the assurance that God is going to deal with evil. We may experience injustice today. We may not have justice in our day. But God is going to affect ultimate justice. The book of Revelation makes that clear. So it's to encourage persecuted believers. And it claims to be prophetic in verse 3. And this is one of the only books of the Bible that promises a blessing to those that read or come to class and hear it. <laughs> All right. And again, the book closes, the last chapter in verse 7, with a similar encouragement and blessing for those that read and not only read and hear, and as Bill pointed out earlier, and what? Do. <laughs> Do. <laughs> Obey. All right. And I see a secondary pur- purpose is to complete God's revelation. Complete what God began. And what he's revealed in the rest of Scripture, he's going to bring it together. And it gives us a final warning in chapter 22, 18 and 19. Don't add, so we have a close to the the canon of Scripture. The book of Revelation, now it applies, don't add anything to this book, but by way of of principle, I think it's applicable to all of Scripture because it's the closing book of Scripture. 18 and 19, and it's a warning not to add and not to distort it. Next week, I'll start with giving you some characteristics of the book, and then I'll give you uh, an overview of the whole book. We'll do the whole book in one sitting. So bring your uh, seatbelts. Seatbelts, please. Who wants to close for us? Can I add one thing? Oh, yeah. Um, The most difficult test to pass is well. We often look at persecuted Christians and say, but we're not. 
But in fact, the most difficult test of faith to pass is of ten people that can remain faithful to God in the midst of persecution, only one will remain faithful to God. Wow. Good point. So we need the book of Revelation. Read it again this week. <laughs> Who wants to close for us? Jenny. Amen.